Well, we are back in Romans chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we pick up with verse 17. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you should find that on page 940. And this is our third Sunday in Paul's three-part demolition of the entire human race. Uh, where Paul has been showing us that no one is righteous before God. No one. Not the pagan, not the moralist, not the religious. Uh, so far we have seen Paul expose uh, the irreligious pagan Gentiles. That was a couple of weeks ago. And then last week uh, we saw Paul expose the good moralists, uh, Jew and Gentile alike. And today, Paul exposes the Bible-believing religious folks, folks who look a lot like many of us. Remember, Paul is writing to the church. He is writing to the church at Rome. In other words, he is writing to Christians, and specifically here, to good, moral, church-going believers, to Jewish Christians who have believed the Bible and practiced their faith for many, many years. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll hear God's Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, You who have called us to Yourself, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for speaking to us today through it. And so we would ask that You would now open our ears to hear, and our eyes to see and our hearts to believe. That we might look to Jesus. That we might rely on Him more and more above all things. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. And so Romans chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 17. Hear the word of God. But if, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the sign of circumcision, but break the law. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And this is the word of God. Well, as you can see, this second half of chapter 2, it consists of two paragraphs. And in this first paragraph, uh, verses 17 to 24, Paul calls out the Bible-believing religious folks for their attitude of superiority and entitlement. And I want you to notice how Paul begins. He begins this section with the word if. If. And literally, that is the first word in the Greek. If you call yourself a Jew. Now that little word, if, oh, that would infuriate those Jewish Christians hearing this letter for the first time. If, if I am a Jew, Paul, I am a Jew. I am a descendant of Abraham and a follower of Jesus. Who do you think you are to question me? Now, I realize that might just roll by for some, some of us, but you know, for us today, we might better feel the force of what Paul is doing here if we substitute the word Christian for Jew. In other words, Paul turns to the church and says, Oh, don't just assume you're okay. If you call yourself a Christian, if, And then Paul spends the rest of chapter 2 speaking to good, moral, church-going Christians. And Christians who take seriously both God and His Word. In these first few verses, Paul calls out the Jewish Christians for finding false confidence. False confidence in their history and heritage, in their Bible knowledge and theology. And now, I I do want to be clear. I do want to be clear that Paul is not saying that there is anything inherently wrong with those things. The problem is what we see in verse 17. The problem is that you rely on. You rely on and boast in these things. Again, an attitude of superiority and entitlement. They're relying on external things to make them right with God. It's the presumptive grace that Ken talked about last week. And you know, we can do the very same thing. And so helpful, I think, is hearing another pastor's paraphrase of verses 17 to 20. You call yourself a born-again Christian, and you are sure that you are right with God. Because you signed a commitment card or walked down the aisle or prayed a prayer and you really cried that night. You remember you had strong feelings for God, so you must have been converted that night. And since then, you have memorized dozens of scripture verses and you know the right answer to a large array of questions. And you've led other people to make a commitment to Christ in the Bible study you lead. And you know other important Christians as well. And you love to go deep in the Bible which is why you're at this church this day listening to this sermon. Because yes, we too can rely 
on external things to make us right with God. And so I remember years ago running into the the father of a childhood friend. Uh, I didn't know him uh, very well. Again, he was the dad, uh, so I just, you know, I knew his child. But we ran into each other at a wedding. It was afterwards. It was at the wedding reception. Uh, He was probably in his mid-50s at the time, and he had just recently become a Christian. He heard that I was doing campus ministry, and, and he was excited, and he wanted to share what God had done in his life. Now, if you'd asked me, I didn't realize the guy wasn't a Christian. But then that plays into the story that he shared with me. Because he said that he had always thought of himself as a Christian. I mean, he had grown up in the church. Uh, he, had, he had always gone just like his parents and his grandparents had. He believed in God. He tried to, to follow the ways of Jesus. He'd been baptized. He studied his Bible. He even taught Sunday school. And he loved people, did, did it as best as he could. He was a, a medical doctor. He believed that, that that was some sort of calling on his life to care for other people. And then he explained that he had a colleague, a medical colleague. A medical colleague who had a hunch that maybe he was just a good person. A good, moral, church-going, religious guy. In other words, a a cultural Christian, someone who actually had no real relationship with Jesus, who had not actually put his faith in Christ. And so this colleague invited him on a medical missions trip, which he was excited to go on, knowing that he had a lot to offer, knowing that God loved people, and he wanted to love people too. And he said, and there I was, in another culture, totally different context, And I saw this vibrant faith being lived out. And my my colleague began talking to me about the cross and about sin and about grace and about my ongoing need for Jesus. And then he said, and eventually he led me to Jesus. You see, for so long, my friend's dad had relied on external things to make him right with God. He'd mistaken being good for being good with God. And no one is ever good enough to be good with God. And when we take seriously, uh, like we see Paul does in verses 21 and 22, when we take seriously what Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, then we know that we all fall short. And not just a little bit, but a lot. We know that keeping God's law goes much deeper than than external actions or appearances. That it includes heart motives. In fact, it is about the condition of our hearts. We know that we all break God's law all the time. I mean, just, just take the examples in this passage. We steal, taking credit for things we didn't do. We commit adultery, looking lustfully at others. We misplace worship, seeking meaning and purpose apart from God. And the list goes on and on and on. And so when we boast in keeping the law, when we boast in our supposed goodness and and godliness, our hypocrisy dishonors God. 
verse 23. And also, verse 24, it turns others away from, even against God. Now, rarely is it outright bragging about being so good and godly. I mean, it can be. But more often, it's the way that someone carries him or herself. You know, unfortunately, many Christians can exude an air of of moral superiority. And often unconsciously, not even realizing it. But there's this, this inbuilt boasting where they're relying on their own spiritual achievement. And usually the only person who can't see their self-righteousness is them. Now, in some ways, that was me in college, especially my first couple of years. I was proud of my spiritual achievement. I wanted others to think highly of me. At times, I walked with an air of moral, spiritual superiority. I often acted like I had all the answers, like I didn't need anything. I mean, come on. I'd arrived, and you could be like me, too. Well, I remember specifically one day being very frustrated with my irreligious roommate and his licentious ways, and in particular because he claimed to be a Christian. And so, that day I was complaining to my friend Catherine, probably in the form of, you know, prayer requests, but I was complaining about my roommate, and and Catherine knew me very well. And she could see my judgmental spirit, my religious pride, my pharisaical ways. And so she asked me, Camper, does he know that you're a sinner? I mean, does, does he know that you struggle with sin too? Well, well no. I mean, Catherine, no, I have got to look good for God. I am representing him in his kingdom. And I remember she shook her head and she looked at me and she said, Camper, He's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is you. You see, with my roommate, I was all law and no grace. And I was driving my roommate away from Jesus rather than to Jesus. But I was blind to it. I couldn't see. And so I'm thankful that somebody loved and cared for me enough to help open my eyes. And you know, there are other ways of boasting and, and, and bragging that communicate superiority and, and self-importance. Are you a constant self-promoter? A constant name-dropper? A constant resume-giver? Here's who I am. Here's who I know. Here's what I have done. Friends, it's dishonoring to God and turns others off and even against God. And so is there any hope, any hope for those who struggle with this? Yes, there is. And Paul gets to that in our next section. And so in this second paragraph, Uh, Verses 25 to 29. In the second paragraph, Paul calls the Bible-believing religious folks away from presumption and into grace. Let me uh, reread a few of those verses for us. Uh, Verse 25. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Okay, I'm just going to be honest up front. I even shortened reading that part of the passage because reading the word circumcision over and over and over in front of a whole bunch of people, it just feels a bit awkward to me. Maybe not to you, maybe it's just my own elephant in the room, but I figured I'd, I'd name it, get it out there, now we'll move on. So, Paul mentions circumcision a few times. Uh, he introduces it, verse 25, he introduces circumcision into his, his reasoning, his argument. And so after he has had all of this talk about the law in a big sense, why does he come to this one part, this one detail? Well, as many of you know, circumcision was the great cultural sign of God's people, of God's covenant with his people. Uh, It was the religious rite whereby each Jewish male was marked as being a part of the covenant community. However... However, this sign had become a part of Jewish pride. Something that they were very proud of being marked by and looked down on those who were not. So it had become a part of Jewish pride. It had had become the basis for what one commentator called a complacent assumption. A complacent assumption that their cultural identity actually bestowed righteousness on them. Their so-called relationship with God had become based on presumed superiority and entitlement rather than on humble joy and gratitude. And thus for many, the outward sign pointed to no inward reality, no real relationship with God. And the sign means nothing if it points to nothing. I mean, think about it. If the sign down at the bottom of the hill on Jamestown Road pointed up here to an empty lot, it would mean nothing. Well, similarly today, many people put their faith in the sign of church membership, however you define that. They presume salvation based on belonging to, based on being a part of, participating in the visible church, what we see. So helpful again is hearing a paraphrase of these verses too. So what if you have been baptized? So what if you are a church member? This only counts for anything if there has been a real change in your life if your heart has been truly affected. Don't you know that you are not a Christian if you are only one externally? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things? No. A Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. What matters is inner baptism, a heart membership of God's people. And this is a supernatural work, not a human one. Because you see, it's possible to trust in Christianity, per se, rather 
than in Christ. So, confession. I like country music. Uh, Kenny Chesney's got a, a great song, and, and in there, there's, there's a line that has, well, it's been going through my mind for probably the past three days. But the line is this. Her mama wants to know, am I washed in the blood or just in the water? Am I washed in the blood or just in the water? In other words, mama wants to know, does my baptism really mean anything? Because the sign means nothing if it points to nothing. Okay, so back to the sign of circumcision. What is Paul doing here? Well, to really understand what's going on, we need to go back for just a moment to Genesis 15 and 17. So in Genesis 15, that's where God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, sign of their covenant relationship. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. But then it was a couple chapters before that, in Genesis 15, where we actually see the making of the covenant. Or literally, in Hebrew, the cutting of the covenant. Now, there's a lot going on in that scene, but in part, one of the things that God does is God has Abraham cut several animals in half and then lay those pieces, make a pathway with the cut pieces of bleeding animals on either side. Now, gross, bizarre, yeah, I mean, that's how it sounds to us, but, but what you need to understand is that in ancient times, you didn't sign your name on a whole bunch of pieces of paper to make something binding. Instead, you had a ceremony that visualized the consequences of breaking that commitment. And so in Genesis 15, we see the consequence of breaking this covenant with God. It is to be cut apart. You see, the sign of circumcision was a visual marker of the penalty for breaking covenant with God. A visual marker of the penalty for breaking covenant with God. The most intimate of relationships and the most severe and painful of consequences. A sign that life ceases to exist if you are completely cut off. But I want you to think about it. I mean, hey, how do we take this in the context of all that has just happened from the end of, or the second half of chapter 1 now all the way through chapter 2? Because what has Paul been doing? He has been arguing that no one keeps covenant. That we are all covenant breakers. That we all break the law all the time. We all deserve to be completely cut off. So is there any hope? Well, the good news is, yes. Yes. Uh, Verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Okay, so clearly it's something inward we need. Something done by the Spirit of Christ. 
And then later, after Paul eventually arrives in Rome, he writes another letter, this time writing a letter uh, to the Colossians. Actually, you heard this part of it, or, or part of it read earlier in our service. And Paul writes to the Colossians, In him, Jesus, in him you were circumcised. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that when Jesus went to the cross, he was circumcised. It was bloody, there was a sword, and he was completely cut off for us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? And just as the prophet Isaiah foretold, he was cut off from the land of the living. So do you see what's happening? The judgment that we deserve fell on him. And so what Paul is saying is that through faith in Jesus, you have already been circumcised in him. Okay? In other words, you have already been through judgment day in Christ. It is is finished. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The ancient promise has been fulfilled. Deuteronomy 30, we read, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of Christ now lives in you. You have been given a new heart. You have been made alive in Christ. And you are growing in Christ-likeness Day by day, as you rely on Him. So as Paul says, don't rely on anything else. Don't rely on your own efforts or appearance. Don't rely on your own attempts at goodness and godliness. Because what happens when we do that? When you rely on religion or morality or anything else, when you rely on anything other than Jesus, then your successes or perceived successes, they become your Savior. And your failures become your judge. And you are tossed to and fro, back and forth between arrogance and despair, between superiority and inferiority. And there will be this constant inner turmoil, unrest, lack of peace, this grasping, an insecure striving to matter. And so Paul, Paul invites 
good, moral, Bible-believing, church-going Christians not only to receive Jesus, but also to rely on Him. To rely on Him in all things. To rely on Him at all times, each day, every day. For He, and He alone, is our righteousness. And the righteous shall live by faith in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a beautiful and a powerful grace to us. Thank you. Thank you for living the perfect life required of us. And thank you for taking the judgment that should fall on us. And thank you that through faith, you are our righteousness. And so we pray, help us. Help us to rely on you more and more to live by faith. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand.